Well, good afternoon. It's good to see everyone. We are in the second week of our Lent series. So last week, uh, we've kicked off Lent by uh, looking at the first saying of Jesus from the cross. It was a word of affection and how he cared for his mother uh, and how he reinstated John into meaningful uh, ministry as he hung on the cross. And so uh, tonight, we're looking at the second saying of Jesus from the cross. And these aren't necessarily in the chronological order that he said these things, uh, but they are going to lead us up to uh, celebrating the word of salvation on Easter Sunday. And so uh, this week and for the next five weeks after, we're going to be uh, continuing to look at what Jesus said from uh, the cross. And one of the reasons we wanted to take our time and focus on what Jesus said from the cross is we read those words or maybe we're aware of what Jesus has said, but we don't understand the fullness of what he's really trying to communicate to us. And I think as you'll see tonight and hopefully going uh, forward and maybe even from from last week the words that jesus spoke from the cross carried great power um, because they were no less than the words of god being spoken and so it's my prayer that tonight as you as you walk with me through this word of anguish uh, that christ speaks from the cross that you would be challenged uh, but you would also be encouraged uh, to come to christ uh, with your sins it was the spring of 2009 when i first felt a dull pain in my right ankle. It was about this time of the year, and I wasn't sure if maybe I had sprained it. Um, Look, it's taken 10 years to get this body, okay? It's taken 10 years of thinking about working out and then not doing it to get in this type of shape. So I think I was thinking about working out, and I think I just thought I'd sprained it in the thought of actually having to work out. But I began to have this pain, and I thought, did I I tweak it? Have I twisted it? I mean, I, I messed that ankle up twice playing basketball growing up. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe it's a bruise or something. And so I tried a few different stretches and some, some different medicines, and nothing really worked to get the pain to go away. Nothing really alleviated the discomfort. And the one thing I refused to do is I refused to go to the doctor. Because here's what I was terrified of happening. I was terrified of going to the doctor with what I thought was just dull pain from a, a tendon uh, stretching out or some maybe some bruising going on. I was terrified of going to the doctor and hearing the words, you've got cancer. And so for four years, four entire years, I dealt with excruciating pain from the swelling and from the pressure in my foot. It was miserable. There are pictures, and if I can find one, I'll show you. Adam took one one time, and it looks like I have a softball sitting on top of my ankle. In the spring of 2013, we finally got favorable insurance through work, and I had developed such a bad limp with my walk that my back was starting to hurt. So I said, you know what, it's time to go get this checked out. So I went, and at first what they thought was bone spurs turned out to be actually a tumor that was resting just on top of my ankle. Luckily, they were able to take it out, uh, determined that the tumor was non-cancerous, and I've been fine ever since, or as fine as I'll be, I guess. Um, But on the top of my right foot, there is a scar about two and a half inches, three inches long that serves as a daily reminder every time I get ready to put socks on, every time I take my shoes off. I'm reminded of the what ifs that ran through my mind the moment that doctor in Greenville said, I'm not doing surgery on you tomorrow because you have a tumor in your foot. All the what ifs that ran through my mind as I walked in and out of Duke Cancer Center, feeling a little bit like a fraud as I saw people battling and fighting for their life, and I'm limping in and out because I'm pre- everybody's pretty sure this is not going to be a big deal. And it reminds me of the physical healing that I've experienced. There are still times, if I stand just right, that my ankle will hurt. If I lock my right leg out and put too much pressure on it, my ankle does hurt. And there's still moments to this day 
that I regret all the years I lost because I just wouldn't face the truth of what was happening with my body. I was so afraid of the truth that I endured four years of pain and misery when a quick trip to the doctor would have healed me that much quicker. This afternoon, we are going to look at the second of Christ's sayings from the cross. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 27. We're going to be in verses 45 and 46. But as we hear this word of anguish from Jesus, it's my hope and prayer that we will face the truth of our sinfulness and sins and come to the Savior for forgiveness and healing. Unlike my fear of what may have been wrong with my foot, we find in Christ's words the freedom to come to him, truthfully confessing who we are without fear of condemnation or punishment because of his anguished cry from the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we're humbled to think that you would cry in anguish on our behalf. And as we look at your cry of anguish tonight from the Gospel of Matthew, as we consider its meaning for our life, I pray that we would find in these words an invitation to come to you, an an invitation to come and to own our sinfulness and our sins and trust the truth that you have absorbed the punishment for them that you have paid the penalty for them. And just on the other side of our fear of what may be, if we confess, just on the other side of that fear, there's life. There's hope, there's joy, there's peace. There's all the promises of the gospel waiting for us. But if we're honest, we often battle the fear that comes from not understanding fully or completely all that you've done for us. So it's my prayer tonight that we would understand a little better the fullness of, and the completeness of your work, and it would free our hearts to be honest, truthful confessors of who we really are, without fear of condemnation, without fear of punishment. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 27, 32, which in my Bible has a subheading, the crucifixion, uh, down through 46, uh, which start, or 45, which starts with the death of Jesus. Maybe yours follow that same type of subheading. But throughout uh, Matthew 27, 32 through 46, Matthew is writing to point us to all that is being fulfilled in Jesus' death that was prophetically um talked about in the 22nd Psalm or Psalm 22. Matthew 27, 35, if you're following along, you can look with us. It won't be up on the screen, but if you got your, the scriptures open, you can look. Matthew 27, 35 fulfills Psalm 22, 18 regarding the dividing of clothes and the casting of lots. Matthew 27, 39 fulfills Psalm 22, 7 regarding the innocent sufferer being mocked by those who look on his public humiliation. Matthew 27, 43 fulfills Psalm 22, 8 regarding the mocker's doubt of God's care and ability to save the one suffering. And finally, Jesus' word of anguish in Matthew 27, 46 come from the opening line of Psalm 22. And this is what Matthew 27, 45, 46 say. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to spare you all me trying to say the Aramaic, okay? Let's just agree that it is what it is. We read the words of Jesus, and if we read all of Psalm 27, 32 through 46, we see Matthew 
is wanting us and wanting the first readers and the first hearers of his gospel to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic word spoken in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David to provide a means of lament for an innocent sufferer, for someone who was suffering unjustly, but it was also meant to point us forward to what the Messiah would endure at the hands of sinful men. The psalm is the cry of a person who knows that the evil they are suffering is undeserved, and yet it is beyond their own ability or their own strength to stop the suffering from happening. As the ESV Study Bible says regarding Psalm 22, 1 and verse 2, it says, It is an expression of just what a person in the circumstances described in the psalm feels. Distress at receiving no relief to his pain or answer to his prayers. This was the state of our Savior as he hung on the cross, fulfilling all of Psalm 22. And he was, Jesus was, the example par excellence of the only one who ever truly suffered in complete innocence. Here was pure, holy innocence suffering. Here was the most true fulfillment of Psalm 22 we will ever see because if it were anyone else suffering, you could trace back in their life and find some sin or some flaw that would make them not a purely innocent sufferer. And so when we see Christ on the cross and we hear this word of anguish, this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the perfect sinless sacrifice. We see the only one who could ever claim that they truly and innocently suffered. So we're left to wonder why these words of anguish, why this cry of desolation from the Son of God on the cross. We hear in Jesus' anguished cry from the cross, but the outer fringes of the cost of our redemption. When we hear the cry of our Savior, we hear the cry of one suffering and dying for sins that were not his own. We would all agree, right, that Christ died for our sins. Like if you've trusted Christ, you're believing that Christ actually died in your place, taking the punishment for your sins on himself as the perfect spotless sacrifice so that the penalty could be paid by the perfect Son of God, so that God the Father could be both just, meaning he has not overlooked the offense of sin, he has not overlooked the penalty of sin, but he could also justify us because it was his Son who would die in our place. And so I think we would all agree, I would hope that you would all agree if you trusted Christ, that he died for our sins. But if we're honest, we often don't pray and we often don't talk about our sins in this way. So let me, I, I was trying to think of how do I make this clear for myself first and then hopefully clear for each of us. And so I tried to think through ways that I normally talk about my sin in prayer or to other people. And this is what I came up with as far as things that I struggle with. And maybe somewhere in here you'll find a way that you kind of soften the blow of your own sin. So I say it this way, Christ didn't die for vague generalities regarding character flaws. Christ didn't die to make bad people good or good people great or great people divine. Christ didn't die for our my bad or I'll do better next time moments. Christ died for our sinfulness and our sins. 
We have to be a church and redeemed individuals who aren't afraid to say this truth out loud. Our treasuring of Christ and our rightly valuing our redemption is tied at least in part to our ability to rightly name and confess our sin. Jesus died for our sinfulness and our sin acts. Jesus didn't just die for the acts of sin we commit. He died for the sinfulness that has plagued every human heart from Genesis 3 on that makes it impossible for us not to sin. He died for the inherent sinfulness that we have inherited from our first parents, and he died so that that would be taken from us, and we would be given a new heart with the Spirit of Christ living in us, motivating us to love God and love others and to live obedient, worshipful lives as the process of sanctification goes on in our life but we have to be willing to own from our human perspective that it was our sinfulness and our sins that Christ died for if we are honest at least for me the reason so many of my and perhaps your habitual sins remain problematic is because we are unwilling to confess with specific honesty our sinfulness and our sins we somehow don't really believe in Christ's cry of anguish from the cross that he was really dying for our sinfulness and our sins. And so we allow these habitual sins to plague our life, to stunt our growth in becoming more like Christ because we just don't trust that his cry of being forsaken was really the cry of one taking on our sinfulness and our sins. And so we allow sin to work its way around our heart and slowly choke the life that Christ offers out of us. It's also the reason, if we're honest, that so many of our interpersonal conflicts linger well past when they should have been resolved. Because we struggle and sometimes refuse to take the lead in confessing our sins against one another. Because we don't really believe in that moment that Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he died for our sinfulness and our sins. And so we become embarrassed or ashamed or confused about how to process through our sinfulness and our sins. And we hold others to a standard that we know we can't meet. And we allow interpersonal conflict to drag on and on and on and on, which both interrupts, and hinders our fellowship with God. Jesus himself said, if you're at the altar and you remember that you have an offense against a brother, you are to leave your gift at the altar, go seek reconciliation with the brother, and then come back and continue your worship. We hinder our communion with God. We hinder our worship. We hinder our ability to fulfill the law that Christ gave, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. By our unwillingness to own just how sinful we are, the, even the remnants of sin that we have in us, like Paul talks about in Romans 7, the remnant of sinfulness in us is still so powerful and the sins acts that we commit are still so pervasive that sometimes it feels like that's all we really have time to do is confess our sinfulness, right? And it's, like disciplining, it's like disciplining our three-year-old daughter. I'm like, I don't even know if she knows that I love her some days because all I'm doing is disciplining her. But I have to trust that in the discipline, she's understanding that I love her. And it's the same way when we bring our sins to God and confess them 
before him. We have to trust that he is already in Christ forgiven those sins and that he really does love us. Just like we read in 1 John 3, what great love has the Father lavished on us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God and that is what we are. But we have to be willing to hear from the cross the cry of our Savior and when we hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear an invitation to honestly own our sinfulness and our sins, both before God and before others. There's a meme that makes its way around every so often, and usually it's around this time of year, and I sometimes wish that I could just be a professional uh, meme dunker and just dunk on bad memes that run around the Internet, but I don't because people get mad or whatever. Anyway, there's a meme that makes its round every so often that says something to the effect of, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross, love did. That is an accurate statement. But here's what it allows us to do. It allows us to run an end around on what put him on the cross. Love may have kept him there, but it was your and my sinfulness that put him there. And so when we read this thing and we go, oh man, the nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross, love did. Well, we got to ask the question. we got to be honest and go, well, why were the nails there? Why the cross in the first place? And it's because of our sinfulness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Challenges us to name our sins before Christ because it was our sinfulness and our sin acts he was dying for. As we hear Christ's word of anguish, we are reminded that he died for the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts and in so doing made it possible for us to confess our sins without fear of final condemnation. If our ears and hearts really heard the depths of bitter anguish in Christ's words, then perhaps we would find sin less appealing. Perhaps the next time temptation seemed to be ready to overtake you, you would find it a little easier to resist that temptation if you could really hear the bitter anguish in your Savior's voice as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we could more fully understand what Christ has undertook on our behalf on the cross and as we hear his cry from the cross, and we understood what it was for the perfect Son of God to die in our place for our sinfulness and for our sin acts. Perhaps the sweet taste of sin in the beginning would become all the more bitter. And perhaps it would become easier to walk in the life that Christ has purchased for us. Not only is this a challenge for us as we hear Christ cry from the cross of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It challenges us to own our sins and confess them. But it is also a call for us to trust that Jesus was in fact cursed for us. How many of you have spent time thinking about Jesus being cursed for you? I'll admit, until I started to get ready for this sermon, I spent very little time thinking about all it meant for Jesus to become cursed for us. I knew he was perfect. I knew he lived. I could give you the, wrote like three sentence gospel presentation 
Jesus came, he lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved so that we could have new life, and he rose from the grave victorious over Satan's sin and death, and he's ascended to the Father, and he is going to return again. But I never pause to ask myself, what does it mean for Christ to be cursed? What does it mean for Christ to become the curse for us? We may struggle when we read the Old Testament books, especially of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to find immediate contemporary application for our lives. Like it's tough to read through those three books and really find an immediate point of application for how it pertains to our life in the 21st century. Because we're not herding bulls and goats in here for after the service to sacrifice things. I'm not wearing linen undergarments. Just going to be honest with you. Like I'm not wearing a turban on my head. You didn't wash in the outer court. Like we don't have some of you sitting behind a certain veil listening to me. You know, some of you a little closer. It can just seem so foreign because we live this side of the cross but i think if there's one thing it does help us do it helps us to remember the truth of how our sin has separated us from god's presence the ceremonial laws the purification rituals the sacrifices the outer and inner courts of the temple the very center of the temple the holy of the holies where god's presence dwelt above the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant All of these point to how utterly separated we are in our sins from the God who created us in his image. Gone are the days of walking with God in the cool of the evening like our first parents enjoyed in the garden before the fall. So Jesus hangs on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem, forsaken by his father. And when we see him hanging there, we see him embodying the physical reality of the curse that culminates in his anguished cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A.W. Pink in his book, The Seven Sayings of Jesus from the Cross, says this. The death of Christ on the cross was a death of curse. The curse is alienation from God. The curse is exile from the presence and glory of God. This explains the meaning of a number of Old Testament types. So I want to do with Pink's guidance and with the scripture that he references, I want us to look at these Old Testament types that we understand a little more clearly from Christ's death on the cross so that you can see how he fully embodied dying as a curse for us. The first one we want to look at is Leviticus 16.27. This is what Moses writes. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. God's glory was located in the temple, which was in the center of the Israelite camp. Therefore, if you were outside the camp, you were exiled from the presence of God. So we see Christ on the cross outside of the city. We see him bearing the curse for our sins and being exiled from the presence of the Father. Therefore, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second way we see Christ embodying the curse on the cross is we have to look back at Numbers 21, 7 through 9. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. 
And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is during the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and they're grumbling against God. And God, as a means of discipline and punishment, sends snakes into their camp to bite them, poisonous snakes. And there are thousands who have died already. And the Israelites own their sinfulness and they say, what can you do? Can you go to God and tell him, look, we understand that we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. What's our remedy? So Moses hearing from God, fashions a snake out of bronze and puts it on a pole. And, and that pole went up. And every time in the camp, if you were to get bitten by one of these snakes, you would look at the serpent on the pole and you would live. The bronze serpent was a means of salvation for the Israelites in the wilderness. But it also served as a reminder for them then, for the first century Hebrews in Christ's time and for us now, it serves as a reminder of when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden through the words of the serpent, Satan, to Adam and Eve. When we see Christ on the cross, we see the one who came to crush the head of the serpent by becoming sin for us. Therefore, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the third way, we see Jesus' embodiment of the curse on the cross. We have to go all the way back to where this all unraveled in Genesis 3. God has confronted Satan, he's confronted Eve, and he is on to Adam. And he pronounces the curse to Adam in Genesis 3, 17, 17 through 18 and says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In Genesis 3, the world is subjected to futility as the curse of sin works itself into every aspect of creation. As God announces the judgment on Adam, he says that the thorns that come from the ground will serve as, as a symbolic reminder of the curse of sin. Everywhere a thorn broke through the ground, it was a reminder of the curse of sin. And when we see Christ hanging on the cross and we hear his cry of anguish, what is it that adorns his brow other than a crown of thorns? The very symbol of the curse from Genesis 3 now is on his head. From head to toe, he is the embodiment of the curse on our behalf. And so he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no halfway in Jesus' death on our behalf. He died for the full depths of your sinfulness. He died for every sinful act, and he became the fullness of the curse on yours and my behalf. None of it was overlooked. None of it was forgotten. None of it will be brought up in a last-minute attempt to disqualify you in your salvation. Everything that you needed for salvation was accomplished by Christ on the cross, but it cost him. It cost him being forsaken, and so he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we will own 
our part in the anguished cry of Christ from the cross, we will love Christ more. We will obey him with glad-hearted joy. But here's the other side of that. We will always struggle to believe the full, full promises of the gospel if we do not see Christ becoming the curse for us. You will never rightly apply the truths of the gospel in their fullness in the way that they are meant to impact your life if you're not constantly reminding yourself that on the cross, Christ became the curse for you. You will never fully live into the life that Christ has for you if you do not believe that his cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was the cry of one who took on your sinfulness and your separation and your exile and restored you through his death to a right standing before God. You will always balk at what Paul wrote in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will always believe that is true for everyone else but yourself if you do not hear Christ's word of anguish and see it as the embodiment of the Son of God becoming the curse for the enemies of God so that we could become sons and daughters. As long as we believe there is a chance we may be condemned, we will never name and confess our sins and sinfulness in a way that brings freedom, light, and joy to our life. Think about the last time you honestly confessed the sin, either in accountability or just in your own personal prayer time. As you think back, how much of your confession was a hedging your bets that God wouldn't take your sin quite as seriously as you know he does? How much of it was a playing with words to try to throw him off of the truth of just how deep the sinfulness in your heart really does run? And how much of it was just an honest confession of who you are in your sinfulness and in your sins, trusting that Christ has already absorbed the punishment for you and you left that time of confession not beating yourself up and not condemned, but walking out restored and revived in your commitment to living for the Lord. When we rightly see Christ as becoming a curse for us, then when we confess sin, we should walk out of confessing sin before Christ or with an accountability partner, not feeling condemned, but feeling comforted by Christ who died in our place. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you get to avoid all discipline for your sins. I'm not saying you get to avoid all negative consequences for your sinful actions and behaviors. But what I am saying is this. Even if you have to endure discipline, and even if you have to endure consequences for your sins it still does not change the fact that christ became sin for you it doesn't change the fact that christ cried out in your place my god my god why have you forsaken me so that you and i could be restored 
The word of anguish that Christ speaks in Matthew 27, 45 through 46, it is a word of deep mystery. We don't fully understand all that is going on when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the good news. If you're a believer, you'll never fully understand it. Because you'll never have to pay the penalty for your sins and you'll never have to know alienation and separation from God at the depth and the level that Christ knew it on the cross. And so we live with profound joy before that mystery because it's something that we will never have to answer in our life. Because it's on the cross that we see, if but for a moment, the turning of the Father's face from the Son. The Father and the Son, who had enjoyed intimate communion and joy together from eternity past, were now separated because the Son became sin for us. There was only one way for us to be welcomed into God's family, and it was in the forsaking of the Son by the Father. So when we hear the cry of anguish, it serves as a reminder that we are adopted by faith, accepted in love, and given new life because the righteous Son took on our unrighteousness and paid the penalty for our sin and our condemnation and our death. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of the Savior into the midday darkness should unsettle us. We should not just read over it and then move on quickly awaiting the resurrection. We should allow the words of Christ from the cross to draw us up short, to ponder, to gaze, to wrestle with all that Christ was accomplishing on our behalf. It should move us to consider anew the depths of God's love for us in Christ, that he would be willing, the Father would be willing to forsake his own son so that you and I could be adopted and made righteous. It should serve as a summons for us to ask the Spirit to help us embrace Christ and the truths of the gospel with newfound joy. It should cause us not to live in a denial of our sins like I lived in denial of what was happening in my ankle. Rather, from that terrible midday darkness, we should see the dawning of light where denial and death give way to confession and life. Here are fitting words from Pink, A.W. Pink, to close out our sermon tonight. This is what Pink says. Here, then, is the basis of our salvation. Our sins have been born. God's claims against us have been fully met. Christ was forsaken of God for a season that we might enjoy his presence forever. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let every believing soul make answer. He entered the awful darkness that I might walk in the light. He drank the cup of woe that I might drink the cup of joy. He was forsaken that I might be forgiven. Let's pray.